Two Fingers Pointing to the Moon, Chapter 3. Breakfast was served at 8 a.m. after two hours of morning meditation. Like all the other activities, meals were taken in silence. It was odd to sit at those long tables, crammed full of bodies, without exchanging any words. We had spent all our lives treating meals as social occasions, as opportunities to share nourishment, both material and spiritual. But it was a crime, we had been told, that so many of us munch through nature's bounty with barely a thought for what we are eating, or how fortunate we were to be there eating in the first place. We were too busy caught up in life's dramas to notice that this was in fact a holy moment, a moment to hold and savour in awareness. Better to concentrate on the subtle joys of each mouthful, savouring each texture and flavour, all the while being grateful for the privilege. As much as I tried to be a good student, mornings were not a good time for me. I couldn't stop my mind from untethering itself from the present moment and fleeing into the minds of my fellow diners, probing their inner stories with my imagination. The woman sitting opposite me, for instance, who allowed her spoon to hang from her fingers letting it dance over the surface of her porridge before submerging it ready for the next mouthful. Each time she did so, her eyes would adopt a searching expression, betraying a hint of... was it nostalgia? But I would have to look away before she noticed me. As we ate there, together yet separately, I noticed that the attention was not just one way. She was casting furtive glances in my direction also. I became self-conscious, trying to keep my gaze fixed on my breakfast while at the same time compelled to look up. And then our eyes met. Instead of looking away awkwardly, we held each other's gaze for a few seconds. There was something unexpectedly moving about this brief connection and it seemed as if we'd been both caught off guard by it. She was olive-skinned and small-featured with a curious, intelligent face. Her expression was complex. There was nostalgia there, I think, but also a vacancy, a lack. Most people had about 30 minutes rest before work duties began, and I would normally head to the lounge area with a cup of herbal tea, seating myself by the big bay window looking out into the garden at the gentle morning light. That morning, on my way there, I noticed a small door behind one of the back staircases was slightly ajar. Wasn't it normally padlocked? Curious, I peeked inside and saw a stone staircase descending into the basement. As far as I knew, only those that worked in the laundry had access to the basement, and I thought the usual entrance was on the other side of the building. I decided it best not to investigate. But it was just as I was turning away that I heard the faint wafts of song drifting up from down below. There was something like deja vu in this moment, caught as I was in a dance of curiosity and fear. I looked around me. There was no one in the corridor. 
So I slipped my body inside the unlocked door, closing it behind me. I was enveloped in semi-darkness, and I blinked my eyes trying to adjust to the light. There was a soft glow coming from the passageway below, and I was certain that the voice was coming from that direction. I found a light switch but decided not to touch it so as not to attract attention. I moved slowly and silently down the steps and along the passageway. Boxes were piled on either side, making the path very narrow. At times they jutted out and I had to feel my way around them. After a few minutes I reached a fork. The light source appeared to be coming from the right, and when I reached a turning, I looked cautiously around for any signs of life. But all I could see was another longer, narrower passageway that extended beyond my vision. Hesitantly, I continued to follow the sound of the voice. A second voice had joined the first, delicately harmonizing with its melodies. It compelled me onwards, this siren song, making me forget my hesitancy. The passage brought me to a doorway partially obscured by boxes. I positioned myself behind them and found a small hole for my eyes to peer through. That's when I saw her, the olive-skinned woman, singing boldly with one arm extended in front of her. And there was another, lighter-skinned woman, with golden hair flowing down her back. They were standing next to each other, holding hands, singing their song without fear. I stood there behind the boxes, watching, listening, allowing their song to seep into the deep recesses of my mind. As I did so, their voices began to echo and multiply in my consciousness. I closed my eyes, and in the darkness I saw a crack of light emanating from behind a distant door. A door that was almost completely closed, but not quite. And as I listened, the door drew nearer, the light got brighter.
It's only 9am and we're already nearing the bottom of the mountain. We took the ascent in silence, but now our friend's sweet song is guiding us down again. We walk lightly along the rocky path, skipping our feet in rhythm with the music. Ethan is walking next to me, his face is open and shining. We share in the delight of the morning warmth, not yet baked into the oppressive heat that is sure to come. Our female companions are just in front of us, singing and holding hands. We're all wearing the compulsory going hippie garb that almost all young Westerners wear in these parts. The locals eye us bemusedly, not understanding why we don't choose to deck ourselves in the Levi's, Adidas and Nike that we can obviously afford. No, we prefer to dress ourselves in cheap, loose-fitting rags. Believing ourselves freed from our habitual consumerist trappings, we dress ourselves up in new ones. Jessica's hair flows like a golden river down her back. I watch it shimmer in the sun. Amy's hair is buzz cut short, making her two heavily pierced ears stand out to the eye, as well as allowing everyone to read the back of her shirt, stamped with the ubiquitous traveller's Hindi mantra, Sab Kuk Milega, everything is possible. The day started at 5am outside the monastery where our friends are staying. At this time the dogs were still energised by the coolness of night and would bark warnings at us as we passed. Now the sun's heavy hand is already beginning to press and they are settling down into their daily stupor. The tiredness from our early start has evaporated and as we reach the outskirts of the town we decide to head in towards the temple instead of taking the outlying road back to the monastery. Walking as four we are discussing the sadhu who has been living in isolation for seven years at the top of the mountain. Surely he's just retreating from life, I insist cutting himself off from the world with all its pleasures and pains. Jessica is not convinced. The world comes to him, she says. Amy agrees. According to her, the real pain is not in the world outside, but on the inside, where most people are too afraid to look. The discussion continues in circles. I say he's running away. They say he's being courageous. Jessica told me a few days ago in one of our long afternoons in the hippie cafe how she'd left her family to go travelling around Asia. 
She has two young girls at home who are being looked after by their father while she's away. But then, she admitted, she doesn't know if she's ever going back. I want to ask her. Does she think she's being courageous right now? When we reach the temple, we see a huge congregation of sadhus filing inside, decked out in their traditional orange robes. A few days before, I had made the mistake of giving money to one of them, only to have the entire cohort descend on me moments later. Today, I walk swiftly past them, avoiding eye contact. Still, we don't manage to evade the swarm of rickshaw drivers offering to take us to other, even more beautiful temples. One of them manages to start up a conversation with Amy, and the group comes to a stop just outside the temple's south entrance. Even from a few paces away, I notice there's something off about this driver. Small in stature, with a crooked posture, he's standing a little too close to Amy, and every time he speaks to her, he leers in with his whole head, surveying her chest with his tiny eyes. Despite the fact that Amy has loosely covered her upper body with a shawl before approaching the temple, there's still far more on offer for wandering eyes than most are accustomed to seeing in these parts, and this man seems to have taken it as his cue that all barriers have been lifted. As if Amy is just dying for him to extend his hand into the space where her shawl parts and grab onto one of her breasts. Which is exactly what he does. Stunned for a moment by his brazen audacity, Amy allows the hand to linger there and the man edges closer, thinking perhaps that he's won his prize. But the reality of the situation overtakes her soon enough and she wrenches his arm away with one hand and gives him a strong shove to the chest with the other. Get the fuck off me, she shouts. I turn to Ethan and realise he's no longer at my side. Ethan is advancing towards the driver with clenched fists, and before he has time to flee, Ethan is on him, knocking him to the ground with one hard push. The crowd is assembling. Onlookers who saw the fatal act take their opportunity to administer brute justice as well, and soon enough there is a small mob surrounding the man, kicking and tearing at him. Amy is among them, pushing her way to the centre, until she is able to deliver a decisive kick to his groin, perfectly on target. The man cries out, and seeing that enough damage has been done, the crowd begins to disperse, leaving him shaking and groaning on the dusty ground. Amy stands over him, seething. Her leg recoils as she contemplates another blow, but drops down again as Jessica arrives at her side, gently pulling her away. Amy fires a salvo of abuse at the wounded rickshaw driver before allowing herself to be led away by Jessica. Her rage has melted into a torrent of tears and we huddle around, trying our best to soothe her. I feel relieved that the situation didn't escalate any further, having read how scenes like this can end with lives being lost. Perhaps we were protected from the worst by the proximity of the temple and the large troop of holy men around us. The procession of sadhus has stopped. A host of wrinkled and bearded faces caked in white and red face paint look on silently as we tend to Amy. They seem unmoved by the event, as if this is a drama they have seen repeated over a thousand lifetimes, returning endlessly without redemption.
End of part one.